The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Charlotte Green is people! No, I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. I'm Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and today I am joined by Slate editor and contributor Dan Coyce. Hello, Dan. Hey, glad to be back at Top Gun. Yes, you are my wingman for this episode, and hopefully you'll have better fate than the wingman of the first Top Gun. I'm really appreciating you coming on to talk about this, especially because, if I understand right, you're doing some side reporting on some of the geopolitical elements of Top Gun Maverick. Am I right? I am doing a lot of important reporting on a lot of aspects of this movie, including how good is the beach football scene and who is the actual rogue state that they are battling. Right. Uh, Yes, I definitely want to talk about both of those things. The identity of the rogue state and its mystery, I think, is a part of what makes this movie both maddening and um, strangely approachable. But first of all, I'm going to start off with just a general response to the movie Top Gun Maverick, whether you would send folks to it or not. And along with that, because this is a legacy sequel to a very, very well-known classic from the 80s, I want to hear about your feelings about the first Top Gun and your sort of first experience of seeing it, whether that was in childhood or teenagerhood or or whatever. Yeah, overall, I would say this is a movie worth seeing, especially if you have a chance to see it in IMAX, if you think that you might like it. If you already know that you won't like it, you're correct. You won't. like If you're not interested in this movie, it's not going to win you over. But if you are a person who, like me, watched the first Top Gun a thousand times as a tween and teen, despite how manifestly bad that movie actually is, you will probably enjoy Top Gun Maverick, which is in almost every way way better than Top Gun. I agree with that part of it, that this is a better movie than Top Gun. I have a slight disagreement with your contention that only if you think you're going to like this movie should you go see it. Because I actually reported to it in something of a, I'm a movie critic, so I must see this kind of mood. (laughs) Not being a huge fan or even having tremendously fond memories of the first Top Gun. I think I have thought of it for years as kind of a piece of Reagan era kitsch that is interesting for how important it was to the culture more than as a movie itself. And yet, guess who found themselves weeping several times (laughs) at this legacy sequel, which may have had less to do with Top Gun or even the story itself than the kind of meta experience of just sitting in a theater, seeing a big, dumb popcorn movie and thoroughly enjoying it. But we will get to all of that. I think, first of all, we should maybe set up where we are here at the beginning of Top Gun Maverick, which is made 36 years after the first movie Top Gun in 1986, but seems to be set in some other different time frame, since if we really were in that time frame, this next generation of pilots would be quite a bit older than they actually are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They fudged that. I mean, if it, it was shot, I think, in actually 2019, 2020, and then got delayed for a couple of years because of the pandemic. And we see a license plate with a 2020 sticker. So it's meant to be set in 2020. But yes, you're correct that they fudge the timing a little because the primary conflict in this movie is between Maverick, Tom Cruise, and Rooster, uh, who's played by Miles Teller, who is the fighter pilot's son of Maverick's old wingman, Goose, who was played by Anthony Edwards in the original movie. As you alluded to, 
Goose suffered a tragic fate trying to eject out of their fighter jet during an accident during an exercise and died. Maverick blamed himself for that death. I hope I, as your wingman, do not try to eject out of a bad opinion and hit my head on the hard plexiglass of public opinion and am also thus killed. But yeah, so that's the big conflict in this one. And yes, if you went by a strict timing, knowing that the kid who represented Goose's child in the original Top Gun was like three or four, then actual Goose would be like 38 and clearly not a young gun fighter pilot anymore. But whatever, one of the many things we must set aside if we are to enjoy Top Gun Maverick is a real sense of the flow of time in our lives, because isn't that what Tom Cruise is here to tell us doesn't actually matter? At the beginning of this movie, Maverick is, despite being ancient and decrepit by military standards, Um, He's still a test pilot. He's still out in the desert trying to push some kind of stealth bomber to Mach 10. And we're told at the beginning of the movie that this stealth jet test has been shut down by a new admiral, the drone ranger, they call him, played by Ed Harris, who believes that manned flights, pilots manning planes are the past. That's over. The time is for drones and programs like this don't matter anymore. He relieves Maverick of his duty, although not before Maverick destroys a plane in a traditional Tom Cruise machismo, I know better than everyone else moment. But instead of actually busting him and, you know, dishonorably discharging him, he sends him back to Top Gun to the fighter pilot school that was the setting of the first movie in San Diego. There, his job is to train a group of young pilots, a new generation of pilots for an impossible mission in a rogue nation to destroy a uranium processing plant. Only Maverick can train them to do this. And of course, it turns out after they all run a lot of exercises and Maverick flies circles around them, that only Maverick can lead this mission. One of those pilots is Rooster. There's a bunch of other pilots with somewhat delineated personalities. But we know that in the end, the real issue will come down to whether Maverick and Rooster can set aside their differences to blow things up together. All right. Excellent summary. I have one thing to add on the Ed Harris note, the, the character that you call the Drone Ranger or that is known as the Drone Ranger by the other characters, which is that there's just something interesting about introducing this figure who represents the new military, the 21st century military, who's sort of the bad authoritarian figure, right, that Maverick stands up against, because it places this movie in a slightly less patriotic space than the first Top Gun, which came out during the Reagan era and at the time was, you know, essentially looked at as a kind of glamorized recruitment commercial. I think that this movie wants to maintain, you know, that those patriotic vibes and not alienate that crowd while not really staking very much on that. And as a result, it manages to insert this kind of anti-authoritarian note by making Tom Cruise's Maverick the analog pilot, the pilot who pilots the old way, which of course also doubles Tom Cruise himself, the movie star who does practical effects and does stunts and acts in the old way himself. Right. It's an argument for artisanal warfare just as much as it's an argument for artisanal blockbuster movie making. And we will get to some of the other, um, what I regard as the kind of laundered geopolitical elements of the military part of this movie. But I think maybe part of why I liked it better than the first Top Gun is just simply that it's, it is more focused on human conflicts and human characters, I think. And there are not quite as many loving, 
you know, pornographic shots of military hardware as in the first one. I don't know, maybe it's just me that's changed and I've been numbed and desensitized to propaganda or something, but I was expecting to be more riled up on that score than I was by this movie. And I really did manage to get into all of the human stories, which is mainly what I want to talk about with you. Yeah, it's interesting to me that, you know, this is a military action thriller, but the vast majority of the actual plot is sort of a classic team building plot or even really like a let's put on a show. The show is an airstrike on a rogue nation's uranium processing plant, but it's still the same spirit, right? It's all of these attractive young people rehearsing for the roles of their lives and failing and failing and failing all over again while a grizzled mentor challenges them and leads them through it and builds them into a team who finally can succeed at the end. Right. So in a way, it is it is a, a movie about teaching, right? And something that Tom Cruise's character says at the beginning when he's put into this, what he sees as a demoted role of, of having to teach at the Top Gun elite flight school is you know, I'm not a teacher, I'm a pilot. He doesn't see himself in the role of a mentor. So it is as much about him learning to become a mentor as, you know, all of these younger pilots learning to fly. And of course, the primary relationship in this mentor-mentee dynamic that's set up is the one between Maverick, Tom Cruise, and Miles Teller's character, Rooster, which is a sort of a a pseudo-father-son relationship. Of course, Rooster lost his dad when he was very young. And as we see him at the beginning of this movie, Maverick has no family. He appears to live in an airplane hangar by himself. Classic, classic rogue nation behavior for a human. (laughs) Love to just have a cot next to my plane that I get up and spend the day fixing. I keep, I still keep my clothes in a locker. <laughs> but yeah, so we we ha- we have clearly established at the beginning that he is a loner, and while we assume that he has been womanizing all through this thirty-six year time span, he has not actually started a family. And something that you noted before we taped that I wanted you to talk about more is that Tom Cruise, in the history of his career, although he now is a father in real life, doesn't really play dads that much on screen, and it's somewhat unusual for him to even be in the role of this whatever you'd call him, this kind of surrogate dad to the Miles Teller character. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, a real crucifile can look back on the filmography and find more examples than this. But all I all that really came to mind was War of the Worlds for me, in which he's, you know, protecting a daughter against that's his daughter, right? War of the Worlds against alien invasion. But, you know, his characters so often are barely even meant to be human, at least in maybe the last 15 years, the years in which, you know, as in terms of age, he's sort of most primed to play fatherly roles. So I found it somewhat refreshing to see him playing a character who actually really cares about how a younger person feels about him and feels regret at the way that he's handled it. We're told early on that Rooster resents Maverick because when Rooster applied to the Naval Academy, I guess, Maverick like torpedoed his application and set him back in his career for years and years and years. And Maverick reveals later to the woman in his life, played by Jennifer Connelly, that he did that because he made a promise to Rooster's mother before she died. Poor Meg Ryan has been killed off by the filmmakers for the purposes of this movie, that he would protect Rooster and not allow him to fly and risk his life the way that Goose did. And he's really like, He's quite torn up about this. And he, you know, he agonizes about what he should do. He confesses to Iceman in a scene with Val Kilmer that he simply doesn't know what to do about this. He tries to confront Rooster, who is who is really resentful and and angry at him. And their reproachment is pretty hard one. 
I'm shocked to say that this dynamic I thought suited Tom Cruise, maybe because it was one of many things in this movie that took pains to puncture the heroic image that I feel like he's built up in a lot of ways. And there've been other Tom Cruise movies that have played with that heroic image. Like I think of something like edge of tomorrow, where part of the fun of that movie was watching Tom Cruise die in like 25 different ways and fail. But you know, unlike the mission impossible movies, for example, in which he's just superhuman, he blows it a lot in this movie. He's blown it with miles Teller and he's, uh, he gets thrown out of a bar by a bunch of young people because he his credit card gets declined. There's even the scene where after he romances Jennifer Connelly and sneaks out of her house, her daughter like sees him and is like, just don't, you know, break her heart again, basically, asshole. And watching Tom Cruise like actually struggle with human issues, even though he's playing a heroic character. I found shockingly satisfying. Yeah, his vulnerability, not necessarily his vulnerability as a pilot, because I think he, he does sort of have superpowers in that department. And right. there are many, many that never goes challenged. scenes, right, yeah. where there are many crazy scenes where he somehow takes a piece of equipment far past the point that anyone's ever taken it by just essentially whispering to the dashboard that it has to go faster. Pulling harder on the joystick than anyone's ever pulled before. So yeah, in the cockpit, he is invulnerable. But outside the cockpit, this movie really is all about his vulnerability including his vulnerability as as an older person, which is something, you know, that seeing Tom Cruise do that when he is well known for being this Teflon movie star who never sort of admits to any change of physical appearance or ability was kind of moving. And I think that that relationship with Rooster, as well as the one with the Jennifer Connelly character, which we should get into, were more... Um, kind of emotions out on the table than you usually see in a Cruise action pick. Yeah, there's way more scenes of Tom Cruise crying than I expected to see in a Top Gun movie. Yeah, maybe that's what got me as well. There's there's quite a lot of male vulnerability in general in this movie. I mean, it's worth mentioning as well that Rooster, the Miles Teller character, could easily have been, in fact, the lazy screenwriting choice would have been to make him the exact equivalent of Maverick in the first Top Gun movie, which is the smug, self-satisfied recruit who thinks he's better than everyone else. Instead, there's another character played by Glenn Powell, Hangman, who is the young pilot who occupies that position, right? He's kind of the Maverick wannabe, and who in fact seems to look up to and want to emulate Maverick more than any of the others. Whereas even as a pilot, I think that the rooster character is shown as having some self-doubt. You know, he's not sure that he can do some of these stunts. He doesn't seem to feel like he should necessarily be the one to be Maverick's wingman. And that was an interesting choice as well. And he's devoted to the idea that you need to look out for your teammates and he reprimands Hangman for his unwillingness to do so. That which was the thing that Maverick kept getting reprimanded for in the first Top Gun. Which I guess makes him more of a goose, right? I mean, he really is more in the position of a goose two rather than Maverick two. Right. And haunted by that death, he, you know, he's the one who's worried about, you know, what happens to the other people if I don't do my job. Whereas, you know, a character like Hangman is just like, everyone needs to take care of themselves. Something else I think the movie does well and just on a design level is that it really makes Miles Teller, who doesn't look at all like Anthony Edwards, seem like he is the son of Anthony Edwards. Between like the droopy rust-colored mustache and the aviator shades, as if you kind of inherit your sunglasses from your dad, you know. But even the scene where he sits and plays Jerry Lewis's Great Balls of Fire at the piano, I mean, there are, we should say, a lot of direct lifts, especially toward the beginning of the movie, just straight lifts from the first film, uh, including the exact same recording of the same Kenny Loggins power pop song 
song under the opening credits. And even before that, the Harold Faltermeyer score is exactly the same. And exactly the, and the basically same. basically the, the opening card. credits yeah, are a yeah. shot-by-shot, title-card-by-title-card remake of the opening credits of the first Top Gun. And I will say that in the, you know, in the packed IMAX theater that I saw this movie in, people went fucking crazy when that happened. They went crazy at the font. The font of the credits made them go nuts. I definitely whispered to my seatmate, it's the exact same font, because I had just rewatched the first movie that day. (laughs) Since you mentioned IMAX, Dan, I did not see my screening in IMAX. I tried to get one of them, but did not manage to get a a preview screening in IMAX. And I want to know, because this is such a big theater kind of movie, and it's so about the loud noise and the um, wraparound immersive feeling of the whole thing, how you experienced the IMAX and how that affected the audience in general. I mean, it looked freaking great. It looked really like it's the one thing I think that the initial Top Gun movie did really, really, really well, even for all the faults I have with it, is, you know, is it shot aerial combat in a totally new and exciting way. And this movie is a, a very obvious huge leap forward from that because of the ability to somehow cram IMAX cameras into F-14s or F-18s or whatever. And the dogfight sequences, the training sequences in planes, you know, the sequence where it all goes bad and someone has to eject, all of those are huge and incredibly exciting and well edited and make like great sense. Like they're just very, very good fight scenes and they're so big and overwhelming that they really just sort of like took over the theater that I was in and people were like really enraptured with those. And IMAX has other qualities too, right? Like there's something really to be said about watching Jennifer Connelly pilot a boat in IMAX. Like her that big on a screen is a sight to behold. And Glenn Powell's chest that big on a screen is a sight to behold. Like all the things that IMAX does well are extremely well taken advantage of uh, in this movie. And we should, you know, shout out the actual director of this movie, even though for all intents and purposes, it seems to everyone like Tom Cruise is the auteur here. There is an actual director here, Joseph Kaczynski, but the IMAX really works. And the action of this movie, though there is less of it than you might expect walking into it, really works really well and is very exciting. And the whole third act, which is, you know, of course, the big, the actual raid on the Rogue Nation is a set of action set pieces, both in the air and on the ground that are all pretty exciting and well-crafted and give you exactly the beats you want, but often in sort of surprising, at least slightly surprising uh, order. Completely agree. And the practical effects, the fact that, you know, most of these actors or all of the actors, I think, are really are in planes that are flying and that are flying at very high speeds and that they all have some experience in piloting. Like, I'm not going to say they're flying the planes while they're being filmed, although the publicity material is being cannily worded to make you think that that could be the case. But there is no question that there was a lot of on-the-ground training and a lot of, of work and technical thought put into making those scenes feel real and editing them so that they seem real and so that it doesn't feel like a bunch of muddy, blurry, quick edits to just create excitement around something that you can't really see. And that is really unusual in an action movie of this scale. And it was extremely effective in the non-IMAX place that I saw it as well. And it's funny, you know, because the marketing campaign of this movie is so much about that training. You know, it's every interview I read with every single one of the actors, you know, Tom Cruise, but also every single one of those young actors playing the young guns. They cannot stop talking about what that experience was like. And in part, that's because I'm sure it was a a remarkable 
experience, like a bonding experience to go through this thing where you are up in these jets learning how, you know, how to take AGs or whatever. But it also really speaks to how much the movie has invested in verisimilitude and as we've said before the the analog way of making movies and the very specific message that that marketing campaign is intending to deliver to audiences and I, and I find it so refreshingly different from the you know the marketing message of like a Marvel movie for example as much as I think oh my god stop talking about how many times you went up in the air and how such and such barfed and blah 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 I still nevertheless find it like such a nice change from look what our you know CGI artisans could do and our 54 effects houses scattered across seven continents. And you will, you'll never believe it. We shot all this on a soundstage in Atlanta and then we put the planet of blah, blah, blah behind them. Like this is so different of a message being delivered, not only in the movie itself, but in every stage of the marketing that I'm enjoying watching it sort of force upon movie going audiences a different way of thinking about what an action movie or a spectacular ought to be. And I think that that's like valuable in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, it makes it, it gets in a strange thing to say about a, a, a huge $152 million summer blockbuster. It sort of gives you hope for, for the future of the, the film industry. How far we've fallen. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> All right, I have a lot more to say about the the human, um, non-mechanical parts of Top Gun Maverick, but let's take a quick break here for a word from our sponsor. If you enjoy the Slate Spoiler Special, the best way to support our show is by joining Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. When you are a Slate Plus member, you get no ads on any Slate podcasts, you get unlimited reading on the Slate website, so you'll have access to every article, every advice column, you'll never hit a paywall. And you get bonus segments or episodes on many of our shows, like Slow Burn, The Political Gab Fest, or my own weekly show, The Slate Culture Gab Fest. And when you support the podcast, you're also supporting Slate. We would not be able to do the journalism that we do without your help. So to join today, go to slate.com slash spoiler plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash spoiler plus. All right, Dan, back to Top Gun Maverick. I know that you wanted to talk some about Penny, the character played by Jennifer Connelly, who is Maverick's love interest in this movie. Um, Instead of him romancing a flight instructor like the Kelly McGillis character in the first movie, he is now romancing a bartender who apparently, I need to rewatch yet again the first Top Gun to hear this brief moment, but apparently she has mentioned this character, not by name, but mentioned as some former fling of Maverick's in, in the first movie, that he had once romanced the daughter of an admiral or something like that. I believe that that's supposed to be Penny. Oh yeah, that's like the go- some of the gossip that was like shared about him. That's funny. I didn't. I definitely did not make that connection. That is def- that definitely suggests a devotion to the plot mechanics and the sides of the initial Top Gun that don't have anything to do with what people actually liked about the initial Top Gun. But yeah, so we have this bartender. She's a bar owner. She owns the Hard Deck a beachside bar in San Diego near near or on base. She has a daughter who looks to be maybe 12 or 13, and she is is an old fling of Mavericks. It seems like maybe a repeated fling. Like it seems like he's been in and out of her life. She seems to have a lot of affection for him despite the heartbreak that she pr- presumably was left with before. And she, you know, 
is beloved by this base community. Her bar is successful and packed with people. I couldn't watch all those people in that bar without thinking about how they were all going to get COVID if this is real life. It's a Navy bar full of aviators and sailors and deck guys. And it has all these bar rules about how she rings the bell. You have to pick up the tab for everyone. And if you disrespect her, you get thrown overboard, thrown out the door. And we get this very fun scene at the beginning, not only of, of Maverick, and Jennifer Connelly's character, Pen- Penny, is that her name? Mm-hmm. Pete and Penny. Pete and Penny, perfect. And Penny, you know, meeting each other again and bantering, but also the whole atmosphere of this bar and how it fills up with all these aviators who are back to Top Gun to train for this mission as they re-encounter each other. And as the whole bar celebrates when Maverick has to buy them around because he left his cell phone on the bar and how people play music, you know, Rooster turns off the jukebox and plays Great Balls of Fire. And then we see him not even really woo her exactly, but just reconnect. They drive around on his motorcycle. They take a ride on her boat. He takes her up in a plane. All their interactions are transportation-based. Apparently, that's simply like that's what gets her going. But they reconnect, and she grudgingly but then willingly accepts him back into her life, in part because he seems, again— in a way that he didn't before, in some way matured, willing to commit to a certain kind of life to her in a way, but sort of more broadly willing to commit to the idea of being a responsible adult. And it seems to me that the movie is trying to say that his sort of embrace of teacherhood, fatherhood, in the case of the Miles Teller character, has an effect on her as well, that she sees that and warms to it, and that helps her become more willing to to embrace the idea of embracing him. Yeah, a quick note about the scene where they go on a sailing trip. I absolutely loved that scene. I mean, she doesn't get a lot of character establishing scenes. Penny doesn't. Mainly, she is defined in relation to him. And I mean, certainly you could make a feminist critique that her character is only there as a sort of helpmate. But maybe it's just because Jennifer Connelly is so great and so expressive that she doesn't need the greatest dialogue to establish a character. But I think also through action, the fact that, as you say, their relationship is sort of defined through action. They both seem to be speed demons in a way. She's really into sailing. They both ride around on motorcycles together. And that scene where they sail is not only beautifully filmed and again, you know, seems to be truly Jennifer Connolly sailing this boat under pretty strong winds. But it also is about Maverick's vulnerability, right? Because he can't sail. And there's this kind of great, you know, physical comedy in that scene of him barely being able to hold on as they're sailing. And she says, I thought you were in the Navy. And he says, I don't fly. What does he say? I land on boats. I don't sail them. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and so just even sort of watching him skitter for balance while Jennifer Connolly, who, by the way, is one of the most beautiful human beings ever to have lived, you know, just gloriously pilots this sailboat completely by herself that was just good watching i think you're right that the movie gets away with a lot or rather with doing very little in scripting that character by casting someone like jennifer connelly a person who's you know who's hasn't been in very much at all for the last 20 years or so but who it just effortlessly commands the screen and commands a scene like her ability to react and respond in a moment is way better than, say, not to be too mean to Kelly McGillis, Kelly McGillis. And so those scenes have a real spark and verve 
And she brings out a real humanity in Tom Cruise, too, a guy who can struggle to access humanity sometimes in interactions with other human beings. And so, again, once again, almost against my will, I found myself at least mildly invested in a basically superfluous romance setup in an action movie that shouldn't matter at all. But yet I actually found myself like at least a little tiny bit moved by it, you know, and, and I, oh, and I want to ask you a question about this. Is there the tiniest intimation that he's the dad of her daughter? Hmm. When she's like, oh, she doesn't, she's very headstrong. She just does what she wants. Wonder where she got that from. Isn't it he, though, who says, I wonder where she got that from? Well, maybe he says it, but still. Hmm, maybe so. But I, I th- well, if so, then they must be, they would have revealed that over the course of the movie, right? It just seems like You'd too big so, a thing yeah. not to reveal. I thought that he said, I wonder where she gets that from, meaning that she, Penny, was was very headstrong. I guess that's another possibly better interpretation of that moment. I mean, I, I suppose that it's possible that 13 years ago in the 36 years that we haven't seen him, <laughs> Maverick did some extramarital dallying. But if it really is true that he's maturing to that degree, then it seems like he would have you stepped up to the plate and acknowledged his fatherhood during the course of this movie. Unless they're, they're unless they're pushing for another sequel. Who knows? Top Gun Maverick 2, the daughter becomes a pilot. The paternity test. That's right. And we see that vulnerability as well. And that sort of hard-won affection between two people with a history in another showcase scene in this movie, the scene with Iceman, played by Val Kilmer, who makes a reappearance in this who is now the head of the Pacific fleet uh, in, a, in a totally reasonable interpretation of the aftermath of Top Gun. He has ascended in his career to the absolute peaks that you know a Navy fighter can ascend to while Maverick has stayed totally stagnant. As one character says, he's still a captain, you know, 30 years later or whatever. But they retain this friendship, you know, the friendship that we first saw if you remember, oh, I barely remembered at the end of the first Top Gun when, you know, they save each other and succeed in this one mission together and then they embrace on the flight deck. And the idea that Mav and Ice are still buddies and like Maverick has Iceman's number in his phone as Ice and like Iceman's been looking out for him and saving his career now and then when he needs it. And that is like adorable, I think. And then the scene that they have even though the actual text of the scene makes almost no sense at all, the interaction between these like two movie veterans, these two movie stars in various forms of you know physical agedness, I also found quite moving, in part because of the vulnerability that both of them showed. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's extraordinary the way the script works in Val Kilmer's real-life struggle with throat cancer to make his character have lost the power of speech. We never know why in the movie he lost the power of speech, but it is set up that he is dying. He has some kind of fatal disease. Right. It came back, they said, which is the classic thing to say when someone has cancer in a movie. So it essentially is implied that that his character has the same ailment that Val Kilmer himself has in real life. And that's extraordinarily well handled and not too sentimentalized and was, again, really moving. I agree. And whoever, whatever sort of continuity people in the writer's room helped figure out what would have happened down the line, who sort of extrapolated the lives of the first Top Gun characters to the second one, did a better job writing a script than the initial Top Gun. I mean, it does seem unusual to me that a 36 years later sequel would understand the characters and develop them better than the original. To some extent, although again, the actual scripting in that scene was essentially nonsense. Like it's him saying, you you know, you got to get past it or whatever. Like it doesn't, 
it doesn't actually explain what realization Tom Cruise comes to. It's the power of the performers and the connection we have to them in each of these cases that we're talking about that in some ways surpasses the essentially boilerplate material they're given to work with, right? You know, it's the power of the connection between Tom Cruise and Miles Teller or between Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly or, you know, with Val Kilmer. For me, that was another version of this movie's embrace of analog storytelling. It's that the real power in the human-to-human scenes was in pure Hollywood star power and acting prowess and interaction overcoming, you know, occasionally good but often mediocre dialogue and development. Yeah, you're right. And that really gets at sort of the mystery of this movie is that there are lots of moments that you can point to and say, that was completely cornball. That was totally predictable. I saw that coming a mile away. And yet you're caught up in the in the emotional momentum of it and you're genuinely moved. Okay, I'm going to build in another quick pause here for a word from our sponsor. And then we will talk about the movie's ending and as well, because this is in your notes of things to discuss, the mysteries of Bob. All right. So you're the one who asked me to talk about the mysteries of Bob, the character played by Lewis Pullman, who is one of the um, the flight students. I want to hear you on him. And because you wrote a whole piece for Slate about it, I also briefly want to hear you on the shirtless beach football scene, which is another callback to the first movie. Right, The thing I was most interested in seeing. Yes. Well, so let's talk about Bob. Bob is among the 16 young guns who are vying for their roles in this impossible mission against a rogue nation. Bob is the wallflower, right? He's milquetoast he wears glasses. He doesn't strut and preen and brag like the other ones do. He's presented almost as like the nerd. Of course, this being the Top Gun cinematic universe, he is a gorgeous, played by a Hollywood star, you know, the son of Hollywood royalty, the son of Bill Pullman, but he wears glasses. <laughs> So that's how you know he's a milk toast. We should also point out that his cool call sign, instead of being hangman or flyboy, is just simply Bob. Hangman speculates that that stands for baby on board. I found it so funny that the movie needed, felt the need to have this character who really is just as charismatic as everyone else, but is presented in the way that like teen movies present, you know, the plain girl who eventually reveals herself to be gorgeous. Basically, it was the same level of cinematic magic as that. That There's this guy who's just a little bit quieter than everyone else, who other people can't quite believe is a hero. But the thing that sets him aside is that he wears glasses while flying a fighter jet, a thing that definitely would never happen in an actual Navy fighter jet, by the way. And one thing I found unsatisfying about the movie is that it never really gave Bob the payoff I felt he deserved. I found him compelling and fascinating as a construct and enjoyable as a character. And I dreamed of the moment in the final battle when Bob would suddenly at a, at a moment of crisis, you know, hit the button that shot a missile that blew up a jet fighter when everyone else thought they were lost and someone went, Bob turns out it stands for big old balls. But then that never happened once. And I was so frustrated by that. Uh, You know, that's a moment where I sort of felt the corniness of 1980s Top Gun might have been an addition to this movie. And the other moment where I felt that was in that beach football scene. You know, everyone remembers the beach volleyball scene from the original Top Gun, which is just a minute, basically a minute and a half music video of the four guys prancing around and looking insanely hot under the sun and then their their stunt doubles playing volleyball. I think that scene for almost everyone 
my age was a like aesthetic and erotic awakening as to the possibilities of both film and the human form. And so I assumed there would be some kind of tribute to that in this movie. And there is, there's a, a fairly fun beach football scene in which everyone gets to be shirtless, except for Bob, Bob wears a shirt in the way that goose did in the original movie. But in this movie, Unlike in the first one, the scene actually plays a role in the story, right? It's that Mav is having trouble making the guys a team and John Hamm's character tells him, you got to make them a team. And so he, they all learn to be a team by playing football with each other. And it's like a moment of triumph that slots exactly into the story where it's supposed to go. And I found myself wishing while I was watching this movie that this was one moment where I wished that Top Gun Maverick had just embraced the total brainlessness of the original Top Gun. Like I wish there had been more preening and more muscle shots. And I wish it hadn't had anything to do with the plot at all. I wish it had just been a music video the way it had been in the original, because that's all I truly want out of that scene. I don't want to be distracted by how this makes Maverick a better leader. I want to be able to focus entirely on the abs and delts and on nothing else. Yeah, what kind of highway to the danger zone is it if it has to have a narrative purpose after all? Right, exactly. Like, that's not what I'm in this for. That is not what I want that scene to deliver. But I will say, if if you, like, turn off your ears, maybe, for example, and just, you know, just use your eyes and your heart in that scene, you probably will still get a lot out of it. The last thing I want to talk about before we sign off is just the climactic choice to have what, who's essentially the surrogate father and son of this movie, to have Maverick and Rooster hijack an old is it an f-14 is that the f-14 yes an ancient f-14 right a plane that would have been you know one of the top of the line planes back 36 years ago when the first top gun was made it's in cold storage in you know the enemy territory in this place that they go at the end on this very vague geopolitical mission to bomb some unnamed country which seems to be maybe a, a rogue state from the former soviet union who could ever say? They certainly do their best to muddy the waters on what it possibly could be, because all those rogue states now have people who like to buy movie tickets in them. Right. Yeah. We can't offend anybody. So it's certainly not going to be in the Middle East, right? It's not a, a dusty desert space that they're bombing. It's someplace in the snowy mountains. And there's this, I think, kind of great, if utterly absurd plot twist where Maverick has to eject from his plane, right? He's stranded in enemy territory. Rooster then ejects in order to go and save him. Am I getting this right? Yes. He saves him from a helicopter that's about to shoot him. In the process of saving him, his plane is also damaged. He ejects. Maverick somehow finds him in the middle of the forest, miles away. Which gives him the excuse to do the, the famous Tom Cruise run that we've all been waiting for through the entire movie. Right. If you thought that this movie, which mostly takes place in the air, would not give Tom Cruise a chance to run fast, you're wrong. And yes, and then they have a great like reunion where they like Tom Cruise is so mad at him and tells him, what are you thinking? And Rooster goes, you told me not to think, just do. And then Tom Cruise is like, shit, I, I did tell you that. And it's so emotional. And then, yes, they sneak over to the base that that their aircraft carrier just blew up with like 20 Tomahawk missiles. But they do find the one plane that didn't get blown up and somehow fire it up, take it without anyone noticing. In fact, no other human beings are seen anywhere on the base because if you showed a human being, you'd have to hint at their ethnicity and therefore the rogue nation in question. And then somehow take off in this F-14 from a runway that has been damaged by these Tomahawk missiles. All of this is, of course, completely absurd. Then they dogfight against three, quote, fifth generation fighters 
which are we've been told a million times would eat F-18s for lunch, much less an old F-14. But somehow they defeat two of them and then uh, are saved uh, in the third by their good buddy Hangman. It's like, again, completely insane and completely absurd, but yet totally rousing. And once again, goes to that theme that we were mentioning right at the beginning, which is essentially that character outstrips technology, right? And that analog is going to beat digital every time. It's the pilot, not the plane, as they say over and over and over again. It's the actor, not the CGI. It's the et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like that is the argument this movie makes. And you know, it does a really good job. And there's just something incredibly funny and sweet about the movie becoming this almost father-son heist movie at the very end, you know, that suddenly it becomes about running very fast across the snow and figuring out a really quick plan to hijack this old plane. Explaining to Miles Teller which switches you have to flip and him being like, there's like 150 fuses back here. Yeah, no, that part is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's essentially, it just becomes the two of them kind of taking a janky old jalopy out on the road, right? But the aerial version. Who's the Bob Hope and who's the Bing Crosby? That's the question. At any rate, the father-son style bonding that happens during that crazy plane heist sequence at the end makes it extremely gratifying when the two of them finally do embrace and forgive each other at the end. Then, of course, there always has to be in a movie like this the moment that the girl shows up as she does outside the airplane hangar that Maverick calls home at the very end. Penny shows up in her car and the idea is that they're going to form a sort of an alternate family together, right? I mean, they seem to be all at that point pretty much settled on their future course. And I, for one, wanted to get right back on the ride again. And I wouldn't even say no to, I don't even need to wait 36 more years for a potential Top Gun sequel. Yeah. I mean, 36 years from now, Rooster would be like 70. So that does seem like they shouldn't wait that long again. And I bet they won't. Yeah. You and I will also be well into our dose if that is to happen, but I hope you'll come back on and, and spoil that one again with me. In the meantime, as we wait for those 36 years to pass, that does it for this week's show. Please, if you can, subscribe to our Slate Spoiler Special podcast feed. And if you like this show, please rate it and review it in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, if you have suggestions for movies or TV shows you'd like us to spoil in the future or other feedback to share, you can send it to spoilers at slate.com. Our producer is Jasmine Ellis. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. For Dan Coyce, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon.